No one who knew Dr. Julius Wagner Yareg ever called him kind. Aloof and distant was more like it. He had a gaunt, unsmiling face with penetrating eyes and a handlebar mustache. If he'd been a cowboy, his nickname would have been Slim. As a young doctor in 1880, he got rejected for several jobs in general medicine in Vienna. So he reluctantly took a post in psychiatry, a total backwater field at that time. In part because psych wards then were truly dismal places. Without modern drugs, psychiatrists had zero effective treatments for most maladies, and most patients spent every day in shrieking horror. One of the most disturbing problems was neurosyphilis, syphilis of the brain. We normally think about syphilis as a venereal disease, but if left untreated, syphilis can invade nearly every tissue in the body, including the brain. And neurosyphilis was an especially cruel form of insanity. It caused shaking seizures and paralysis, and it made people lose control of their bowels. Every single person who caught it died horribly, quaking with fear, babbling mad, and smeared with their own filth. Overall, neurosyphilis accounted for 15% of all insanity cases. And doctors tried everything they could to cure it, including several quack treatments. Some drilled holes into people's skulls. They applied flayed roosters and live frogs to the genitals. People chewed gum laced with mercury or wore mercury-soaked underpants. The wildest treatment involves sitting on a special toilet and lowering your genitals into the water for electric shocks. It didn't work, but people were that desperate. Even worse than the treatments was the social shame. Because syphilis was a venereal disease, syphilitics were often rejected by their own families. Even saying the word syphilis was considered obscene, and some doctors refused to treat people who had it. So this was the state of asylum care in Wagner Yareg's day. Insanity was incurable, and neurosyphilitics were the most reviled patients of all. But one day he witnessed a miracle, something that made him question everything he knew and pushed him down a path that's still causing controversy today. It began with a psychotic woman that he treated in his ward in Vienna in 1883. Or rather did not treat. One day, randomly, this woman came down with a bad fever, intense and hot. She moaned for days, and she barely pulled through alive. And when she woke up, well, that's the thing. She wasn't crazy anymore. Her mental state had improved dramatically without her doctors even lifting a finger. To Wagner Yarg, the whole incident seemed spooky, yet also fascinating. Had the fever somehow cured her insanity? Did that even make sense? He had to find out. He began scouring the medical literature, and he uncovered dozens of similar cases. An insane person would get a fever, survive it, and emerge sane. These were lost souls, people who were barely human. And somehow a disease, of all things, saved them. Wagner Yareg was baffled. What did this all mean? One thought in particular haunted him. 
All the cases he'd read about involved people catching fevers accidentally. But what if you gave someone a fever on purpose? Would that also work? It was a dangerous idea. Doctors cure diseases. They don't induce them. And people died from infections all the time back then. Could he really risk infecting people? Then again, as he looked around the ward at his howling mad patients, people utterly without hope, he asked himself another, more pressing question. Given their despair, how could he not risk it? From the Science History Institute, this is Sam Keen and the Disappearing Spoon, a topsy-turvy, sciencey history podcast, where footnotes become the real story. Wagner Yarig's first experiments in treating insanity with fevers proceeded slowly, with great caution. He injected some insane people with the microbes that cause strep throat and later tuberculosis microbes. But neither disease produced fevers reliably. Besides, patients often fought those ailments off. He needed something with prolonged fevers. And unfortunately, he was too busy to give this work his full attention. By the end of the 1880s, he had a family and he was trying to establish himself professionally. He then became a professor and got distracted with administrative duties. He kept trying different diseases in the 1890s and early 1900s. But before long, his radical idea of curing insanity with fevers was just a half-forgotten pipe dream. The audacious young striver had been replaced by a timid old man. And things might have stayed that way permanently, if not for World War I. In 1917, a 60-year-old Wagner Yarig was still working in a psych ward in Vienna. He later admitted he was in a bad state mentally. The slaughter of the trenches made life seem senseless. He was cynical and walled off, desensitized to the carnage. But one day in June 1917, something broke through. On that day, a wounded soldier came in, a fellow with a mustache and a high forehead. The man had shell shock. But that wasn't all he had. He'd just returned from the trenches of Macedonia, near Greece, where he had caught malaria. Austria did not have malaria then, so Wagner Yarig was not used to seeing cases. It's a mosquito-borne disease, characterized by chills, as well as extreme fevers, well over 100 degrees. And as Wagner Yarig watched the mustache soldiers' fevers come and go, ebb and flow, something stirred inside him. Could malaria be the key to curing insanity? The idea seemed crazy. If any disease was the work of the devil, it was malaria. It's the single biggest killer in human history. More people have died of it than any other ailment. It is not something to toy with. But what if? By 1917, there was a reliable treatment for malaria the drug quinine, which I've mentioned on this podcast before. So Wagner Yarig reasoned that the risk was worth it. He could induce high fevers with malaria, but also stop the disease when he wanted with quinine. And however dangerous malaria was, it was still better than the 100% death rate of neurosyphilis. 
So one day, Wagner Yarig withdrew some blood from the mustache soldier's biceps. Then, after a deep breath, he injected it into two patients with neurosyphilis. And the moment he did so, he feared he'd made a terrible mistake. You see, with most diseases, you can isolate people so the disease does not spread. A quarantine. But malaria is spread by mosquitoes, which we cannot quarantine. So what if some mosquitoes bit his new malaria patient and then escaped? The entire city of Vienna might erupt with an outbreak. Thousands could die. The thought panicked him. He grabbed another asylum patient, a man who still had a few marbles left. He ordered this man to go to every room in the whole hospital and capture every flying insect that he could. So that's how the patient spent the day. He scoured every corner of the building, jumping, slapping, swiping, running, chasing those little bugs in endless circles. I mean, we've all tried hunting down lone bugs before. It can drive you crazy. But this man was half crazy already, and he apparently enjoyed himself. The patient then brought the pile of bugs to Wagner Yarig. He sat down with a trembling hand and scrutinized them one by one, at the end of which he melted with relief. There were some mosquitoes there, but the wrong kind. They weren't the type that spread malaria. His experiment could proceed. Wagner Yarig ended up injecting nine patients with malaria that first round. A tram conductor, a clerical worker, an actor, a sergeant major in the army. The first signs of malaria emerged three to eight days later. Nausea and chills. Then the fever started. The fevers would spike as high as 106 degrees before breaking. After that, the chills and fever alternated every day, hot and cold, burn and shiver. Each patient suffered through seven rounds of this before Wagner Yarig cured them with quinine. And the results stunned him. Of those nine patients, six recovered. Three even returned to their jobs, fully cured. The other three did relapse, but only after months of coherence. And really, curing insanity even temporarily back then was a stunning achievement. Over the next few years, Wagner Yarig expanded his experiments. Admittedly, several people did die of malaria at his hands. But he kept pushing. And after World War I ended, this so-called malariotherapy started to spread, first through Europe, then the Americas. Have you ever wanted to appreciate books or movies or music from another culture? Do you have a big trip coming up and want to get beyond the tourist spots and immerse yourself in local culture? No matter what the reason, Rosetta Stone is the language program for you. Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning for 30 years. Millions have used it. Rosetta Stone knows what works for getting started, remembering what you've learned, and motivating you to stay on track. Plus, the built-in true accent feature gives you live feedback to improve your pronunciation. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. So don't put off learning that language. Start today. For a limited time, Disappearing Spoon listeners get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. 
That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Its arrival in the United States was particularly noteworthy. The director of an insane asylum in Washington, D.C., called up some colleagues in the tropics and ordered a dozen mosquitoes infected with malaria. However, all but one mosquito died in transit. That's because they got stuck to the tape that was used to hold the cage shut. So the last precious malaria-bearing bug was met at the airport by the military and ferried across town in a 10-ton truck. The truck outweighed the lone mosquito by 10 billion times. But the transport was worth it. The mosquito proceeded to dine on and infect several different patients with neurosyphilis and cured them of this once incurable disease. Overall, roughly 30% of neurosyphilitics recovered completely with malaria therapy. An additional 20% got partial relief. As for why they got better, their high fevers almost certainly helped. Microbes cause neurosyphilis, and microbes die at high temperatures. That's why our bodies generate fevers in the first place, to fight infections. By that logic, however, hot baths should have worked just as well as malaria. But they don't. Doctors tried hot baths on insane folks repeatedly in the 1920s, and every time, external heat failed to cure neurosyphilis. Only internal fevers worked. Scientists nowadays speculate that, while heat played a role in malaria therapy, the body's natural defenses also helped. Perhaps malaria kicked the immune system into high gear, and it started attacking syphilis germs that went undetected before. But really, even today, no one knows why malaria therapy worked. That lack of understanding always made scientists uneasy. And it didn't help that malaria therapy outraged many people morally. Again, catching syphilis was considered shameful, and the ravages of the disease were considered God's punishment. Malaria therapy was therefore ungodly, preventing people from reaping the just rewards for their sins. More materially, some doctors objected to malaria therapy because they had sworn the Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. And however you slice it, giving someone malaria was pretty harmful. Because while malaria therapy did cure thousands, it also killed 15% of patients, an astronomical rate. Plus, what about the risk of malaria outbreaks in cities? Wagner Yarig had lucked out in there not being the right type of mosquito in Vienna. But what if other cities weren't so lucky? For these reasons, some doctors considered Wagner Yarig not a savior, but a villain. In fact, although some insisted he should win the Nobel Prize, others called him a devil. Overall, though, the pluses outweighed the minuses. And in 1927, Wagner Yarig won the Nobel Prize. A full 54 years after he'd first considered using fevers to fight insanity, he had reached the pinnacle of scientific medicine. After this success, doctors tried the malaria cure on other diseases, polio, epilepsy, cancer, other types of insanity. It failed every time. Only neurosyphilis was vulnerable. And by the 1950s, when penicillin became widely available to treat syphilis, malaria therapy was just too risky to continue. 
As a result of all this, Julius Wagner Jarek has disappeared from history. And some people today still condemn him as a monster. At best, there's an embarrassed silence nowadays, a syphilis-level shame among doctors that they ever had to rely on something so crude. But really, why the shame? Malarial therapy seems drastic only because we have the privilege of forgetting how bad neurosyphilis was. We'd probably make much different choices without modern psychiatric drugs. And lest we get too smug, malaria is bad, certainly. But doctors today induce no less misery with harsh chemotherapy drugs. Judge not, lest ye be judged. They say that politics makes strange bedfellows. But nowhere was there ever stranger bedfellows than syphilis and malaria. Both were ancient scourges, among the most evil and devastating diseases in history. Yet one cured the other. Syphilis has always had a moral dimension to it. But in this case, salvation came from the very work of the devil. This is the Disappearing Spoon podcast, brought to you by the Science History Institute. Find out more about their library, museum, and multimedia magazine at sciencehistory.org. Make sure you check out the Science History Institute's other awesome podcast, Distillations. You can find their in-depth narrative stories and interviews about everything from space junk to sex, drugs, and migraines anywhere you get your podcast and on their website distillations.org You can find more incredible stories from my books at samkeen.com You can also book me as a speaker at your school or event. If you like this podcast, please support it at patreon.com slash disappearing spoon. It costs as little as seven cents per day. You can also get bonus episodes and signed books. Please spread the word to others as well and subscribe in iTunes, Stitcher, or other places. This episode was written by me, Sam Keen. It was mixed by Jonathan Pfeffer and produced by Mariel Carr and Rigoberto Hernandez. Thanks for listening. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.